coming at you from Verge headquarters in Indianapolis. I'm Matt Hunkler with Powder Keg. Today, we're talking with a young investor who made his first million dollars at age 21. Ambition without intelligence is like a bird without wings. And I think that there's so many young entrepreneurs and there's so many self-help gurus, you know, the, the business coaches these days, that just try and pump people up. They artificially inflate enthusiasm. They artificially inflate motivation. And w- what they're trying to sell is that if you're really enthusiastic and you're really motivated and you're really inspired, then you'll succeed. Well, that's not really the case. Because unless you have the practical application of it. You can have all the enthusiasm in the world and that, you know, you can be bouncing out of your skin on a moment by moment basis. So excited to go do something. But unless you have the level of sophistication and the knowledge and the understanding to go execute it in an intelligent way, you're just spinning your energy. That's Jordan Weirs from this interview. And he's the CEO of Savant Investment Partners, where he's spearheaded more than a hundred million dollars of real estate investments since 2012. Now, I met with Jordan in his office in Las Vegas just to learn a little bit more about what makes him tick. I wanted to understand his investment habits and leadership style, but what I got was even better than I expected. In this interview, Jordan, of course, is going to share his personal startup story, starting with his first commission check at age 15. So in that, you're going to hear some productivity hacks, how he approaches his work, as well as some of his leadership best practices. But you'll also hear about the risks of living an expensive lifestyle, which Jordan learned firsthand. And then my favorite part of the conversation, dealing with failure and how Jordan and his company survived just barely survived the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, and a little bit into 2009. So we've got all of that here for you today and more on Powder Keg. So I know you're looking for even more ways to get more Powder Keg into your ear holes. So here's a couple of ideas uh, how you might listen to Powder Keg on your commute, at the gym, and anytime you need a quick hit of inspiration. I've got three words for you. Subscribe on iTunes. Find us by searching for Powder Keg. That's all one word, Powder Keg. Or you can just go to powderkeg.co slash iTunes. You can download or stream any of our conversations with people like Christian Anderson, who's a partner at High Alpha. He has launched eight funded startups in its first year of operation and has an amazing story to share with you. Uh, But you've also got awesome interviews like the one we did with Cole Hatter, who is a master connector. He's also an author, investor, speaker, and founder who really pursued entrepreneurship out of desperation. And his story is just incredible. So I hope you listen to that episode. That's episode three. This episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Town. Now, what's Developer Town, you say? Well, let's let one of the partners from Developer Town, who also happens to be a senior designer, Darren Shapurji, tell you a little bit about it. Developer Town is a software studio that helps uh, business leaders turn great ideas into digital products that have traction. And that's key as well, that have traction, right? We're not just making products and, and throwing them out there and hope they win, right? The way we do that with large companies is that we take our knowledge of working with hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs over the past four or five years here at Developer Town, and then the knowledge that our managing partners have over their 20, 30 years of experience. We take that knowledge and we work with these large companies to sometimes basically restructure and rework the way they build products internally and give them better tool sets and ideology on how they should build a product. So sometimes we're not actually even the ones doing it. We're just advising them. Sometimes we are and we have those capabilities. How to create almost an internal team within their company that moves and acts like a startup in today's 21st century does on its own. So almost like a small bubbled company within a company as well. I know it sounds almost too good to be true, but Developer Town is serious about providing the tools that companies and entrepreneurs need in order to build their digital products. They're going to do everything from validation in the product strategy through customer research, but they're also going to do things like rapid prototyping, testing, and developing quickly and getting that product out into the customer's hands so that you're going to get real feedback and you aren't going to be just chasing some idea, but you're going to be chasing real revenue and real traction. So check out developertown.com slash powder keg, and that's developertown.com slash powder keg 
for more information. Developer Town, start something. As I mentioned before, I'm joined today by Jordan Weirs, CEO of Savant Investment Partners, where he's managed more than $100 million of real estate investments. Now, Weirs is a nationally recognized real estate expert who's been recognized by members of the U.S. Senate, U.S. Congress, the Nevada state government, and has even been featured on numerous television networks like CNBC, NBC, and Fox News. He's been a real estate investor and investment manager in many areas across the United States, and that includes commercial and residential assets, development and office projects, and even industrial properties. Weirs was awarded the prestigious Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award by the Small Business Administration in 2007. He's also an accomplished author, because why not? If you're doing all this other stuff, you may as well write some books, too. Uh, he wrote the book Maverick Millionaire and Become Incredible, both of which are available on Amazon and everywhere the books are sold. Uh, but today, we're going to go a little bit off script and go deep on business philosophy. But without further ado, here's serial entrepreneur and investor, Jordan Weirs. Jordan, it's really awesome to be with you here in Las Vegas. Uh, obviously, this is one of the top cities for commercial real estate, if not maybe the top city for commercial real estate. And your experience as an entrepreneur has taken you all over the world. It has helped you ramp up businesses. You've also experienced the, uh, the heartache of the crash in, in 2007, but you made your first million before age 21. Um, so I'd love to start the conversation with your first entrepreneurial venture, which I believe was at age 10. Is that right? That's right. That's right. What was that first venture? Well, it, it started with uh, with my passion for aviation. As you can see on my wall up, up yeah. here, I'm a you know former air show pilot and a commercially rated pilot. And so uh, I've always had a passion for aviation. And when I was a kid, I really wanted a remote controlled airplane. And uh, I saved up my money and, uh, you know, doing lawns and taking care of neighbors and, and whatnot. Saved up my money and bought a uh, about $125 glider, remote control glider. Uh -huh. And I got this thing home and I realized how fragile it was. Those are the days where it was balsa wood and, you know, that, that real light covering. No drones at that point. No drones, <laughs> yeah. And, and difficult to fly. And, you know, at 10 years old, I was thinking, gosh, I'm going to, you know, waste 125 bucks, which was all the world, uh, all the money in the world to me at the time. So what I did was uh, I decided, okay, instead of um, trying to fly this thing and crashing it, I'm going to put it up for sale. And so I put it up on the internet and uh, was asking the same 125 bucks. It was on a local free classified ad. And a guy emailed me and said, listen, I don't have 125 bucks, but I have a remote control airplane. Well, you know, light bulbs go off in my head and I say, well, I know that's worth more than the glider. <laughs> so I trade it up uh, and I put that up for sale for a couple hundred bucks. And before I know it, a guy you know called me up and said, listen, I don't have 200 bucks, but I have a remote control helicopter. And again, another light bulb, right? And so I, I built this thing up from you know about 10 to going on 11 years old uh, into the point where at 12 and 13, I had uh, boats and jet skis and motorcycles and you know all kinds of stuff that I was just trading and buying and selling and, and that kind of stuff just uh, off the recycler free classified ads in Southern California. That's incredible. So the... The decision to do something like that at age 10, usually there has to be some sort of impetus or something that drives someone to take that sort of action because there's a lot of other things, a lot of different kinds of candy you could have spent that on, uh, potential girlfriends that you could have bought jewelry for. Uh, not that that would have been necessarily a, a bad use of your money at the time, but fast forward now to you're, you're now in your 30s. Uh, clearly, investing in yourself early on has been very helpful for where you are now and the lifestyle you've been able to, to create for yourself and others that have worked with you. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what, what was your home life at that time? What, what drove you to take that action in a very focused way? Uh, and then what drove you to continue to level up? Well, um, I'll start by answering the question in two parts. One is, you know, what, what drove me and what made uh, aviation or toys or whatever it was important to me at that, at that age is, you know, passion. You know, I, I grew up uh, watching Top Gun thinking that was the coolest movie in the world. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I knew that my taste for toys was really, really expensive in life. Um, you know, I always had a passion for airplanes and motorcycles and cars and, you know, things like that. Mm. Um, and, and I knew from a very early age that you don't get those things unless you have money, right? Um, but I think, you know, if we back up from, from 10 years old 
to when I was about six or seven. Mm. Um, you know, I, don't, I didn't have any unique challenges different than what many kids do today, but it certainly wasn't an ideal childhood. And my mother left me at home alone a lot. And, um, you know, even at six and, and seven years old, eight years old. So what I ended up doing was, uh, you know, I spent much of my day at home because I was in home study. Yeah. And so I watched, you know, television most of the time and just was bored out of my mind. You know, <laughs> my mom worked 12 hour shifts at the, at the hospital yeah. and she owned a small business on the side as well. So that pretty much took up all of her time. Sure. Well, I'm sure she was up late one night and uh, watched one of the infomercials that Tony Robbins had uh-huh. and picked up Personal Power, the audio set. Sure. The and original so, one. The original one. Probably on cassette. I, it was on cassette, <laughs> awesome. actually. So, uh, you know, I was tired of watching TV and I Love Lucy and Andy Griffith uh, show reruns, you know. So what I did was one day I saw this box uh, that had come to the house and it sat on the kitchen counter for about two months. And I decided, okay, I'm going to open this thing up. And I open it up, and it's Tony Robbins tapes. Well, I we had a little cassette recorder, and I just took one out and put it in and just started listening to it. And uh, I didn't have, uh, you know, I had a dad in my life, but but he, it wasn't uh, a full-time, you know, type thing. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, I listened to Tony Robbins, and he has that deep voice, that very masculine persona. And, you know, I didn't really understand everything that he was saying, uh, obviously, you can't. It's six, seven, eight years old, right? But right. Um, but I understood just enough, and I became enamored with his voice and yeah. with his persona. And uh, he kind of, you know, uh, filled that masculine role in in my life for a couple of months as I just repeatedly, you know, listened to these uh, audio sets over and over and over again. And how old were you at this time? I'm gonna say I was probably somewhere around seven. Okay. Wow. Yeah, somewhere around seven. That's a great time to find. I, I didn't find that particular audio program until I was probably 19 or 20. Yeah. Um, but I had a very similar experience to you. And, and you know, I got to tell you, like I said, it's not like at, at seven, I comprehended all this information sure. and I knew exactly what the deal was. Right. But, uh, but it, it, it did, uh, plant a seed in me. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can only listen to things, uh, so often without it actually resonating, uh, into who you are, Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. Was there one takeaway that you remember from that program uh, that that maybe did sink in, or that has been kind of an underlying. No, um, but I can tell you that I've been a fan of Tony Robbins since I was a young kid. Yeah, um, very very young kid, and uh, I began reading his books. You know, Awaken the Giant Within when it came out. And, sure, and uh, you know, as young as I could have been at the at the time. Uh, I, I was picking up as much as I could, yep. and it fed me. It yeah. fed me spiritually. It fed me intellectually, and uh, I do credit a lot of that for uh, you know, and home study as well for uh, making me mature earlier in life. Mm-hmm. Right? It gave me a uh, an adult view of the world, not a you know typical kid you know view of the world. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're trading up uh, motorcycles, jet skis. Um, and probably enjoying every moment of that process, right? You because bet. you're leveling up at every chance. Absolutely. Uh, I'm guessing that you got a little bit addicted to that sort of growth mindset. Um, while you're doing that, was there a particular breakthrough moment for you? Was there a moment when you went from, you know, you yourself being the one calling into these classified ads or placing the classified ads to buy and sell these pieces of equipment to where? it really turned into more of a, a business that had a life of an energy of its own? It, it did. Um, you know, within within four, five, six months of starting this whole process from the remote control glider to the airplane to the helicopter, uh, it did take on that, that role in my life as a business. It was no longer, um, you know, what I wanted to play with, right? It was, well, can I make money doing this? Yeah. Uh, and that evolution happened very, very, very quickly. Probably the the turning point uh, in my life, the lessons that I learned very early on was uh, when I was 14, I was on the internet and I was looking around for uh, uh, just information on helicopters and airplanes, obviously my passion. So uh, I stumbled across a rotorcraft news group, Mm. a helicopter news group. And uh, I saw a classified ad from a guy who said, do you want to buy my home built helicopter? And here's the specifications and whatnot. And it really intrigued me. I mean, the idea of a home-built helicopter, right? I mean, sure. every 14-year-old has this in his imagination. I'm going <laughs> to keep it in my garage, and yep. I'm going to fly it around the canyon, around my house, and it's just this awesome uh, dream that every kid ought to have. So what happened was uh, I called him up, 
and I said, you know, hey, listen, can you tell me more about the helicopter? And, you know, I quizzed him on it for a few minutes, and we got down to price, and I said, well, what are you asking for it? He said, well, I'm asking 55000 bucks." And I said, well, thanks for your time, but yeah. <laughs> I'm 14 years old. I don't have 55000 to spend. Yet. Yet. <laughs> so he was, uh, he was nice enough. He was, he was impressed. He said, wow, I'm really impressed with the questions that you answered and your, you know, your level of intelligence. He said, listen, I really need to sell this thing. So if you would uh, find me a buyer for it, I'll be happy to pay you 2500 bucks. Well, again, 2500 bucks being all the money in the world to a 14-year-old kid. And, uh, you know, at that time I could, you know, double my net worth, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I took him up on it. And whatever possessed this guy to uh, create a contract that my mom had to sign because I wasn't 18. <laughs> and uh, he put, you know, printed out flyers with my phone number on it and... Did you know to create a contract at age fourteen? Hadn't didn't have a clue. Yeah, didn't have a clue. So so this guy almost took on a mentor role for you. In many ways, he did. That's in great. many ways he did. And uh, you know, I went and posted that helicopter for sale on every free classified website that I could find. Had my mom take me around to all the local airports in Southern California. We put <laughs> put up the flyers on the little pin boards, and um, I ended up selling the helicopter probably three or four months after that. I was just turning fifteen years old. And I got my first big paycheck at 2500 bucks. That's awesome. How did that feel? Do you remember? Felt great. Yeah. Felt great. So the, the evolution was that, you know, I didn't want to buy uh, toys, right? I wanted to invest it. I wanted to be wealthy. Yeah. And uh, I ended up investing it in unleaded gas options in the commodities markets. Mm-hmm. And within, uh, within months, I had lost all but about $6.28 of it. It's ex- some expensive tuition at that age. Yep. It was it was pretty interesting. Or six, I think it was six dollars and thirty two cents was the check I got back. Well, t- talk to me about how you were feeling at that moment. What was the self talk going through your head? You know, it was interesting because it, at fourteen, fifteen years old, when you think about investing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're so optimistic. You're overly optimistic. In fact, most young people are unrealistically optimistic with investments. And I really did think that I was going to take this. 2500 bucks and turn it into 50,000 which would turn into 500,000 which would turn into a million you know over time and I didn't really have a good understanding of the risk yep. and uh, you know losing that money was a kick in the gut but at the same time uh, it was very important for me to learn early on in life especially taking on the role as an investor mm-hmm. uh, and and an investment manager in, in years to come that uh, investments aren't sure things that you know there are a lot of risks and uh, even though it was a kick in the gut, it got me steered back into, I said, well, okay, maybe this commodity trading thing is not my deal. Uh, I'm going to go into uh, back into aircraft sales. If I did it once, I can do it again, right? Yep. And that's when I opened up my company, Extreme Aviation. Okay. And, and at what age was that? At 15? That was at 15. Okay. So you were able to take the uh, psychological hit of losing that $2,500 and somehow parlay that into going out again and going right back out there onto the field, you know, many people might go onto the field and get hit and they might get knocked down and sidelined for years or maybe even forever, right? When someone doesn't fully understand the risk and they get punched in the gut or hit from the side or whatever metaphor you want to use. What do you think it is that drove you to get back out there on the field and get back in the game? Passion. Okay. Passion. It was, you know, at that point, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, having your first candy bar, Yeah. right. Where you kind of go, Oh man, this tastes so great. <laughs> like I want to, this, I could eat these all day long. Right? right. And, uh, and, and that taste of, of that, that money now, it, you know, it was, like I said, a kick in the gut. It was, you know, depressing to say the least to, uh, to lose your life savings or a good portion of your life savings at that age. That was, that was, you know, terrible. Yeah. But, um, the the idea that if I did it once I could do it again. Sure. And I love airplanes and I love helicopters and I thought, well, you know, I'll go do something I really really enjoy. Uh, and like I said, I was home studied the majority of that time, mm. and uh, so it gave me the time during the day to be able to focus on that as well. What I think is really important for every entrepreneur and every business person to understand is that life is going to be full of those times, right? Uh, there's going to be periods of time in your life where everything goes goes great and goes well, and there's going to be periods of time when you know you get kicked in the gut yep. financially, emotionally. Um, it, there's a whole host of life experiences that people go through, and so there's never this steady climb to the top, right? The uh, I think on Facebook I, I saw 
uh, a drawing that someone did, and it circulated itself around the internet pretty fast. And it's, you know, what people think is the line to success, which is a straight line, and then what it really looks like. Yep. And it's just a bunch of scribble, right? And, <laughs> I've and, seen that one. And, and that's really what life is about, yep. is uh, you get kicked in the gut, and you do get pushed back. And um, perseverance as, as a principle is used way too often mm. in a cliche way. You get people who have no idea what the term means or what it means to live it, uh, but they're using it every day, and they're preaching it to young entrepreneurs. Perseverance is the ability to understand that you are going to get kicked in the gut and pushed down and fall down on a very regular basis. Yep. And and perseverance is the ability to get back up and say, I knew that was going to happen. It's fine. I'm moving on. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. And, uh, and that has paid huge dividends to me in life. Well, and, you know, obviously sitting here now in your office, you've done a billion dollars in transactions, over 400 properties now with your current company, Savant. Um, but obviously there was a huge down point in the market after you made your first million at age 21. Um, was that hit, that sort of kick in the gut? Did that, how did that feel different than the kick in the gut when you lost that 2,500 investment? Way worse. Yeah. Way worse. I bet. Uh, the amount of money that I lost was astronomically more, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, Percentage-wise of my net worth was probably, you know, a lot more. Um, but, you know, I was I was blessed because I really fought my way through the, through the downturn. Now, the other side of it is, you know, I was uh, responsible for managing a real estate portfolio at the time that was about $150 million. And uh, I had a lot of investors, a lot of mom and pops, and I took that responsibility very, very seriously. And when I was watching the world crumble around me, it wasn't, you know, that, uh, that I, I no longer uh, could afford the Lamborghini and the Bentley and the private jet and all that kind of stuff. It was the, uh, the heavy burden of having other investors' money invested in deals that you did. And, and you know, in the real estate market, there's no sell button. You, yeah. you, you can't get out. There's, right. no, there's no liquidity when there's no buyers. You're going down with the ship if the ship's going down. Yeah, and, and that was difficult to watch. That was very, very difficult to watch. And, you know, God bless your souls. I still have a lot of those original investors that still invest with me today. Um, but it was, it was difficult being at the helm, and that's, um, you know, imagine waking up every day to a whole new set of problems. And knowing that you're not going to see a good day <laughs> or you're resolving those problems for months or potentially years. Yeah. And, uh, and that was very, very, very difficult for me. I, I would imagine. What, what kept you getting out of bed in the morning? What, what drove you to drive to the office and continue working? Or... Res responsibility. Yeah. Responsibility. You know, I had a responsibility to those investors and, and to myself. Uh, I was very, very fortunate. Every one of my competitors, I shouldn't say everyone, the large majority of them uh, have been sued by investors like crazy. I was never sued. Uh, a large majority of those uh, uh, competitors have filed bankruptcy. Uh, I didn't file bankruptcy. And it was a fight. It was an absolute fight. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to keep yourself above above water and do your best job for your investors. And um, it was it was a time that that really... Uh, cut my teeth, if that makes sense, yeah. in, in this world. And it was the, the make or break moment. And uh, it still to this day, I help a lot of those investors, you know, still deal with a lot of the issues that uh, that happened back in the in the crash. And it was something unlike anything I'd ever seen. I have always made it a habit to surround myself with incredibly bright people. Mm -hmm. I had um, ex-CFOs of multiple public companies, you know, name brand companies on my board. Uh, I had um, uh, ex-CEOs of publicly held companies on my board. I had uh, private equity venture capitalists on my board. And, you know, we all sat around the boardroom table and were trying to depict what was going to happen in 2008, early 2009, when things really started to fall off the rails. And we all looked at each other around the boardroom table and said, well, okay, you know, it looks like maybe we might be in for a 20 or 30 percent, you know, correction here, you know. And uh, we never imagined that it would be a 70 percent, as in 7-0. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Case Schiller and those guys have their own statistics of how bad it was. But, you know, there was homes that were selling for 300000 at the top that traded at 100000 at the bottom. Yeah. And, uh, and there's pieces of land that sold for a million dollars at the top that traded for you know, 200,000 at the bottom. It was extreme. It was unlike anything that we had ever seen before. And uh, so it was, it was uh, 
a good life lesson. And now, being an investor and an investment manager further into the future, you know, I look back and, and now I realize that there's signs when markets are topping and there's signs when markets are bottoming. And when things are good, mm -hmm. you just want to believe that they're going to continue to be good. And you want to believe how smart you are and how well positioned you are and that it's all your fault and, and you know, your abilities and talents that have created this massive amount of success. Well, you have to realize that markets, you know, fluctuate and go up and down. And the real wisdom uh, now is learning what makes them top and what makes them bottom. Sure. Well, and through that process... Um, I imagine that there was ups and downs, or did you have kind of unwavering, uh, unwavering confidence and optimism throughout that, that, Hey, we're definitely going to get through this. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, listen, I'm far from perfect, right? Sure. Uh, I think it would take, uh, take someone far, far greater than me to have that optimism and, and confidence in those extremely dark days. Um, you know, those were the days when, uh, you know, Bernie Madoff was out there stealing billions from people. Yeah. And you had Wall Street, you know, brokers and investment advisors committing suicide. And, you know, it was it was an extremely dark time, especially in our industry, mm -hmm. for the economy in general, for certain, but especially in our industry. I mean, we were, in the real estate business, the epicenter of that financial decline. So, no, I was not the uh, the eternal optimist that got up every day saying, I'm going to go crush this, you know, I'm going to be bigger and better than the recession. I got up every day out of duty and responsibility and integrity, and I worked my way through one problem at a time, and that was where perseverance paid off. That I, it's amazing. It, it says a lot about character that you were able to get through that without filing bankruptcy. Um, obviously, you had already earned millions uh, upon millions. Uh, you're driving Bentleys, driving Ferraris. You mentioned the private jet. Um, obviously, you like to fly. Um, do you think that earning that money at an early age created more risk for you uh, or less risk going into that that downturn? Oh, more risk for sure. Mm -hmm. More risk. You know, um, it's, it's funny because a lot of the self-proclaimed uh, entrepreneur gurus or business gurus, you know, they, they show you the picture of their Rolls Royce or their Bentley and they show you the picture of their high rise and they post pictures on Facebook of all their vacations and, you know, the, the high flying life that, that they lead. Right. And I really, at a young age, I thought that's what success was, right? I really did. And so the better I did, I increased my lifestyle in order to uh, prove to myself and prove to the rest of the world that that's what financial success was. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I really, consciously, I understood that that wasn't really accurate, accurate right? But, uh, but deep down, I wasn't convicted of it. And so I followed along in suit, right? I would, uh, I'd have a half a million dollar a month and I'd go buy a Bentley. And uh, when I was able, you know, I bought a $1.75 million airplane and I lived in a million and a half dollar home. And, you know, I just constantly upgraded my lifestyle uh, along with my success. And it was a terrible mistake. And so having gone through that now, the first time, now I understand the real goal. And, and I've been in the uh, you, you know, in the investment business for the last 13 going on 14 years and the last half of it, which has been post-crash, has been all about balance sheet, right? And it's about understanding the reality that these people who drive the Bentleys and the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris and have the Jets, the large majority of them simply don't have the net worth to support that kind of lifestyle. Mm. And uh, they're counting on the income. And if their income stream stopped tomorrow, they might be a matter of weeks or months uh, perhaps a few quarters away from bankruptcy themselves. Yeah. And so, you know, now there's a tremendous amount of freedom, uh, as I've learned through the difficult times and learned from our investors that, uh, that it's all about building your balance sheet. That's how, you know, these guys, I've got a lot of ordinary investors, guys that walk in in blue, blue jeans and t-shirts and drive Ford pickup trucks, you know, pretty much exactly who I am today yeah. that, uh, that are all multi, multi, multi-millionaires. Some of them were 10, 20, $30 million. And, they're not ostentatious. They're, you know, they're, they're not bougie. They're, you know, they're not drinking Cristal in their multi-million dollar mansion. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not about the physical items. It's about the freedom that wealth creates and it's about growing it. It almost becomes a game of monopoly. Right. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's about, uh, them being able to spend the time doing what they want to do and wake up every day knowing that they're not beholden to, to anything or anybody. Well, I definitely want to get back to that because I think that's an entirely uh, 
different level up sort of mindset. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that you mentioned here, it just makes me think back to something that another entrepreneur said to me that a lot of entrepreneurs have their ego tied up in all of those external factors, right? The, the Bentley, the, the Ferrari, the whatever car or house or vacation home. Yeah. Um, and you clearly have learned throughout your entrepreneurial journey to tie your ego to other things. Um, and, and obviously the, the balance sheet isn't the only thing. I know that you're a person that is passionate about making a difference, uh, building a life that matters, building a life of freedom. Um, but I think that that first mindset of shifting from, uh, acquiring things in, in terms of, um, things and experiences versus acquiring assets on a balance sheet that are actually going to help develop more wealth. Um, Talk to me, or maybe even talk to the listeners here, because we have a lot of young entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs who are just now hitting that $100,000 or six-figure, maybe even mid to high six-figure income, or maybe they're even making uh, less than six figures, but they've taken on millions in investment, and they're in it you know, for the long haul and growing value in their business. What is something that an entrepreneur can start doing today, or what is one way they can start thinking today? that's going to build them for a sound financial future and, and a sound, um, really base of life. Yeah. Well, let me say this. Uh, the, the first thing that they have to understand is that you have to become an investor in principle, right? And when I say that you have to be an investor in principle, it doesn't mean that you have to have a million dollars to go invest today. It means that you understand that a big part of your income ought to be held back. And what most people do is as their income increases, so does their lifestyle, Mm. right? And and I've made that same mistake. So it's about uh, not increasing your lifestyle when your income increases and putting a little bit of that money away. And let me tell you the progression that that happens is first and foremost, you start with saving 100 bucks a month or 200 bucks a month, which I started doing at 17, 18 years old. And then all of a sudden you're able to save $1,000 a month. And it's like, holy cow, you got 10 grand in the bank, you know, after seven, eight, nine, 10 months. And, and you just think I'm, I'm a genius. Like, this is <laughs> awesome. I feel so secure. And, you know, that'll turn into 20 and 30 and then 30 turns into 60 and 70 and then 70 turns into 150. And you're like, wow, I'm doing really well. And then 150 turns into 250 and 250 into 500. And, you know, it keeps going. And, and as time goes, your number gets bigger and it's exponential. Most people just don't care to save a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks or a thousand bucks because they don't think it matters in their life. It's right. it's too small. It's too um, insignificant in their view to make them a millionaire. Well, I can tell you that, not without exception. There might be a couple of exceptions, but the majority of investors that I have dealt with for the last fourteen years of my life mm-hmm. started there. You know, um, there is the the young entrepreneurs that seek to be the Richard Bransons or the Donald Trumps or the you know, and they want the big hits. They want the the big dollars. I'm not working on what's going to make me a hundred grand. I'm working on what's going to make me a million or ten million or a hundred million or a billion. And they have these very grandiose ideas. But what you have to realize is that the 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 statistics say that that's a very rare thing to happen. Yep. Right, the Mark Zuckerberg's of the wheel of the world, the Donald Trumps of the world. Those guys are one in uh, hundreds of millions, and so what it comes down to is you can either choose the path that's extremely risky, right, and chase the elephants, which have a statistic probability of not working, or you can do what you do really, really well and put one brick on top of the other every single day for many years at a time and end up worth $20, $30 million by the time you're 50 and 60 and ready to retire, and the rest of your life is done, Yeah, right? And uh, you don't need the private jet, and you don't need the $20 million house on the, you know, on the hillside in, in Laguna Beach. You need uh, security, and sure. that's, that's what that offers you. So to the young entrepreneurs and the young, uh, you know, the, I'll, I'll call them the wealth generation, the people who want to create wealth, it's not just about income. Income is not wealth. It's about your balance sheet. It's about your net worth. And that is where the rest of your life and your future and your stability and your freedom comes from. Well, and that, I, I think that's really great perspective because it kind of gets back to this thing that I've, I've learned is very consistent, uh, not only in your life, but in most successful entrepreneurs' lives, and that is discipline. 
being disciplined to do the work every day, day in and day out. Uh, if you're younger, maybe you're taking on more risk in some areas, uh, but you're balancing that out with low risk things that are, again, it's a discipline of building that net worth and that portfolio so that you're accumulating assets that generate wealth. Yep. And, and so in terms of discipline and your discipline now, having gone through the entire journey, right? The journey of investing in material things early on. And I, I'm sure you were still investing in things that were long-term investments as well. But, but now kind of having had to go through the course correction of the market, right? That could have just as easily gone up. And now you would be, you know, maybe 200, 300x where you are in terms of net worth. Um, but that's why when you talk to any entrepreneur, it, they always say it's, uh, a lot of discipline, hard work, focus, and a ton of luck. Yep. Right. So you, you want to set yourself up to be there where when like luck strikes, but Absolutely. also be prepared when it doesn't. Talk to me about your discipline. What's what is your what have been some of the habits on a day to day basis that have built this discipline for you and and helped you, you maintain the discipline? Well, I think I think first and foremost, you you make a really good point that you have to be there when lightning strikes. Right. Um, I make it a practice to be uh, in the office five days a week, if not more, that I'm responsive, that uh, I engage with, with people, my peers, my mentors, my uh, underlings, yeah, everyone. I give, I give everyone a certain amount of time, right? Yeah. Because I know that, that buried somewhere in every relationship is an opportunity. What does responsive mean to you? What, what, is, what is your personal standard? My standard is if I have an email in my inbox, it needs to get out the same day. Okay. Right? Uh, I, I believe that so many more people could be so much more successful if they interacted quickly and respectfully and promptly to their customers, their clients, their, their partners. That, that hits home for me 100% because I feel so busy and overwhelmed by my inbox sometimes. And uh, I realize that my inbox is no more full than if not probably magnitudes less full right. than the most successful people in the world. And they're still able to get responses within the same day. And I, I think part of that for me is probably toning down the amount that I communicate because I, I like to communicate with a lot of thought and emotion and I spend a lot of time in responses. Yep. But I've been trying to discipline myself to get quick as opposed to thorough you know, a lot of people make, and I'm not going to call it a mistake. I'm going to say it's a, it's a style preference, right? Yeah. Um, I I make it a point that even if my response is, um, you know, hey, that works or this doesn't work, let's touch base tomorrow. Then an email goes out, and especially in my industry where I've got investors that are investing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars at a time, mm -hmm. you know, they don't ever want to think that they can't get a hold of you if if they need to. And that's why I make it a, a policy that every investor has my cell phone. Every investor, uh, you know, will email me and get a response within 24 hours or less. Um, that's really important, not, not just for my industry, but, but for everyone. Yep. And whether you're thorough or you're cursory or it doesn't matter how you do it, respond. Be active. Engage with your clients, your customers, your partners, the people that are important to your business. And that in of itself will carry a good amount of momentum into the future. Yeah. That, that's great. What are some of the other habits that you've stacked on top of that? I think uh, organization, which is very tough for me. Yeah. Uh, I found uh, that entrepreneurs... Your desk looks pretty neat to me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I cleaned it off a little before you came in today. Sure. But, uh, but at the end of the day, it's difficult for me, just like it is for most entrepreneurs, because we are uh, creative-minded, right? And it's difficult for us to be organized to get things done. And so I've created this really simple... Uh, way of myself keeping on top of things. In fact, if you look, I got eight screens in front of me. Yeah. And on one of my screens... Do you have enough? Do you need me to get you a couple more? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 10, 10 might be good. Yeah. Um, but, but on eight computer screens, I keep track of everything that I need, and it makes me very, very efficient. One of these things is, uh, is my action items, mm -hmm. which is the things that I have going on here, here in life. So, you know, if you look down, I've got, you know, various properties and projects and construction going on and something that I need to do or the next phase for each and everything so that in my breaks and my lulls during the day, 
I can I can look at this and say, okay, what do I need to be doing now? Yeah. And so it's finding a way to always be productive. And I'm not perfect. I check Facebook during the day and stuff like that, right? That's uh, Everybody's a little bit different that way. And I could probably be more disciplined, but I found my groove and I found a way for a disorganized guy like me to be organized. Yeah. Uh, the other well, th- And I noticed too that you're not using some fancy piece of software. Uh, you're not using the, the newest, latest uh, mobile optimize, blah, blah, blah. Yep. It is an Excel spreadsheet. That's right. Um, and, and so I, I think that that's important to, to call out, uh, because I think a lot of times people get caught up in the tools and trying a free trial of this out and then switching to this thing. And well, now I'm using Basecamp, So everything's going to change. Yep. It's, it's really not, about the practice, right? It, it, it is about the practice. It's not about the technology. Uh, it's not about the, the idea. It's about action. Mm-hmm. Simple, action. And, um, every, like I said, everybody's different. I'm not going to critique somebody for using Basecamp. If, if that works for you, then use it. But what I think happens to a lot of entrepreneurs is that, uh, and, and business people in general is that they try and systemize their, their creativity and how they're creative and how they do really well at what they do. I'm a deal guy. Yeah. I can, I can underwrite a $10 million deal in about 10 minutes and I can know whether it's something I want to pursue or I don't want to pursue. And there's no amount of organization or checklists or software that I can, you know, spend gobs of time, hours, you know, inputting stuff to just come up with the same result. I know that I can do it very, very quickly. And so I don't overcomplicate my life by trying to over system, uh, systemize my, my life and my business. Uh, I do what's necessary for my team and myself to be productive and no more. That, that is a huge, huge nugget that I think. Uh, I, I know I will be implementing more and more, um, but an, an insight just in the last two, three years that for my own self and our own business at Verge uh, has made huge, huge strides in our productivity uh, and in terms of serving our members and serving our sponsors uh, has made a huge difference. Uh, just focusing on systematizing every piece of the process. You know, you, you talk about taking action, and I, I know that you believe in taking action, but you also believe in taking strategic action intelligent action yeah absolutely can you talk to me about some of the 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 discipline or habits around the intelligence that you develop i'll I'll talk to you about the philosophy yeah okay um and and here's you know i'm I'm gonna knock on a few of these um you know young up-and-coming uh jim rones or young up-and-coming tony robbins and you know, the, the guys on, on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, it's all the motivational, all the rah-rah. And yeah. there's... Um, Do you think all of that's helpful or hurtful to young entrepreneurs? It, it has its place, but I think it's become more hurtful than it has helpful. I agree. And the reason why is is I think that uh, most people, uh, especially young entrepreneurs who don't have a lot of, you know, they don't have years or decades in experience. You know, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 10. So... I've got now 22 going on 23 years behind me as an entrepreneur, and I've learned a lot, and I've taken a lot of lessons during that period of time, and uh, and I've translated those lessons into uh, experience, into wisdom, and into knowledge, and I use that every day, and I try and translate it into sophistication, yeah. right, is I think the most simple word to use. And uh, I think it was Jim Rohn, I may be wrong, said that uh, ambition uh, without intelligence is like a bird without wings. And I think that there's so many young entrepreneurs and there's so many self-help gurus, you know, the, the business coaches these days, that just try and pump people up. They artificially inflate enthusiasm. They artificially inflate uh, motivation. And w- what they're trying to sell is that if you're really enthusiastic and you're really motivated and you're really inspired, then you'll succeed. Well, that's not really the case. Because unless you have the practical application of it. You can have all the enthusiasm in the world and that, you know, you can be bouncing out of your skin on a moment by moment basis, so excited to go do something. But unless you have the level of sophistication and the knowledge and the understanding to go execute it in an intelligent way, you're just spinning your energy. Yep. And so I see uh, a lot of young entrepreneurs get really, really hyped up and not making practical steps forward in their business and their life and their career and their finances and their balance sheet and their net worth because they're tied up with the enthusiasm. They think that the next moment or within the next day or the next week or the next month, they're going to get a grain of wisdom that is going to turn them into a millionaire. And that's just not how it works. It's wisdom, it's knowledge, and that takes time and experience, and it takes falling down and getting back up. 
And, uh, you know, unless you're waiting for lightning to strike and win the lottery, uh, the, the practical application to success in business takes both ambition and dedication and focus, but it also takes uh, knowledge and wisdom, and that's built over time. So I, I, I love that. I, I love that it, you say it takes knowledge and wisdom. And, and I know that you're a big believer that uh, a lot of the most valuable insights can be found in books. Um, there are a lot of people that think that reading a lot of books is the important thing. Uh, is that something that, that you believe success is almost correlated to the number of books you read? No. Or, or do, you, do you think it's more important to find the right books? No, it's important to find the right books. Yeah. And, and it's important to find the quality. Why is that? Um, and, and again, my philosophy varies from other people. So what's right for me is not right for, for everybody. I find that it's more important to grab gems to always be learning to always be growing, mm -hmm. to always uh, be getting educated and building your knowledge and, and building your wisdom base. And I think there's a lot of great books that do it. Uh, John Maxwell, and you know he's got some great leadership books and lots of good material out there, my own books included. Yeah. But sit, sitting down and reading a book is not going to make you wealthy. Sitting down and reading a book is not going to make you a million dollars. What's what's gonna make you a millionaire is taking action based on the information that you have and continuing to grow your practical experience and knowledge. And what it's I think hard for a lot of people to understand is um, that the only thing that that comes out of books, right, is is superficial knowledge that you have the opportunity to make practical knowledge that you can, you know, uh, you can put into practice. But if you don't have anything, if you don't have a practice to put it into, if you don't have a, a business or a system or a set of clients or a set of, uh, you know, investors in my case or a set of deals in my case, if, if you don't have the practical application for what you're learning, you lose that very, very quickly. And so there's people who say, well, I want to read a, you know, a book a day for the rest of my life or I want to read a book a week or a book a month. Listen, I think that's great. Wh whatever's right for you. But don't spend all of your creative time or your downtime or your free time uh, reading a book to try and apply. Don't spend all your working time reading books so that you can try and apply it one day. Mm -hmm. Spend your time taking action and working and, and growing your experience base and then take the nuggets out of what you read and what's important and, and apply it practically. That's, that's so very, very important uh, and a key differentiator that I think uh, probably more first-time or early entrepreneurs need to hear, uh, which is, you know, maybe it's time to put the book down. If you're going to have downtime, use that for thought time. Use that for thought experiments. Uh, use that for thinking strategically about how could you be approaching your work differently or how could you be approaching a particular deal in a more creative way or who could you bring into the deal to, uh, you know, 10x the results for everyone involved. Uh, are, are there any disciplines that you have in terms of that downtime? Not not when you're reading, not when you're doing specific things uh, for particular deals, um, but just space to think and allow yourself to be free of thought. I do. Um, you know, one of those things that uh, I've got a, a cabin that we use as a business retreat up in Utah in the mountains. Oh, that's great. And uh, you know, I'm up there quite often. And I, I think here's the other thing that's really important is you need to schedule your business thinking time. You need to schedule your time and block out your time to think strategically or to plan or to, uh, you know, to be creative and come up with new ideas and thoughts and processes and procedures and, and, and ways to move your business forward. But it shouldn't occupy every waking moment of your life. And for me, like a lot of entrepreneurs, that, that's a struggle. Yeah. Because we're so passionate about it, and so much of our identity is in the passion of doing what we love, that it's hard not to think about it all the time. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I do is I'll go start a fire in the fire pit, and I'll sit there for hours and just poke at this fire and put <laughs> on more logs. And, and it's therapeutic for me, and I don't have to be thinking about business or anything else. I think taking time to unwind and not put the pressure on you to be uh, thinking moment by moment uh, about your business and what you can be doing, I, I think that actually wears you down. I think it burns you out, and I think you need that downtime uh, to let your body and your mind recover. 
Uh, one of the things that I like to do, and it goes against a lot of you know common practical principles, is I love watching TV at night. Uh, with those mindless programs, not, you know, keeping up the, with the Kardashians and that kind of garbage. But <laughs> but I, I, I do watch uh, enough TV for half an hour, an hour to let my mind unwind and detach from the goings on in the day. What what shows are your guilty pleasures right now? Family Guy. Family Guy, nice. <laughs> Family Guy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good to laugh. Stupid humor, right? And it's uh, it's not overly complicated. Your mind doesn't have to think about it. And it just winds me down. And, and I think that's okay. Again, it's different for everybody. There's some people who uh, have the discipline and say, absolutely no TV whatsoever. It's a waste of time. Tis and her own, you know, yeah. um, and, and God bless them, whatever works for them. But for me, I know that I have to have some time for my mind to unwind. And if I don't do that, I begin getting burnt out very, very quickly. Yeah, well, and, and you said that word, burnout, uh, in terms of energy. You also talked about the campfire, of course. Um, but that, that term burnout... A lot of times the word I hear entrepreneurs or investors say is hit the wall. I, I finally hit the wall and they almost have to do a, a reset. Have you ever had a moment where you've hit the wall or come close to hitting the wall? Absolutely. Yeah, well, absolutely. What did that feel like when you were close to that? Uh, Was that it, early in the career? Well, it, it, it happens periodically. Yeah. I mean, you know, even just to happens. this day, yeah. even to this day, it just happens. Um, there are weeks where on Thursday afternoon, I am just done, put a fork in me. It's, <laughs> you know, the, the mental energy and the stress of what I've had to deal with that week was just, you know, frankly, too much. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, you persevere and you work through it. Uh, and you work through the time because of your obligations and your promises to people, and you keep your integrity and and stay you know in that uh, mode of perseverance. But there's also times when you say, "Look, it's Thursday afternoon. This is why I do what I do, so that I can take off Thursday afternoon and show back up on Monday." Yeah. And uh, and and take some time for your body and your mind and your emotions and your your your, your whole system to just recharge a little bit and get out of a familiar environment. One of the things that, that's difficult for me is, uh, even though I've got a beautiful office, is uh, I am not creative here. Yeah. It's claustrophobic for me, and this is my life. This is where I live, right? I've got a phone, a computer. Um, I get text messages and emails, and you know, this is my life in this office. I don't get to go work outside and, uh, and enjoy the beautiful weather here in Las Vegas. So it's important for me to get out of my familiar zone as well to recharge. Yeah. Because you you can get stuck in that familiar environment and it becomes monotonous. And that's important that you know whenever something becomes monotonous, your creativity is done. You're just going through the motions. Yeah. And so uh, you know, once a quarter I take uh, I take our staff and we go off-site and we do our little retreats and strategic planning and talking and thinking. And we always do it off-site. Uh, and the reason why we do that is we don't want it to be familiar. We don't want the phone to ring and have us to answer the phone, or we don't want to have emails and computers and printers and faxes and, and all that kind of stuff within easy reach. You know, it's it's a time for us to recharge and get out of the familiar so it's not monotonous. Yeah, that's great. And well, it sounds like uh, even though it is creative, going back to what you said earlier, it's scheduled creativity uh, to make sure that you're making time for it, saving time for it. Um, but then also, you know, I've experienced this myself and still do to this day, that it's, it's very easy to find yourself... Uh, you know, spending time with family, but in the back of your brain, you're thinking about some business uh, opportunity or uh, some particular issue that you're you're working your way through. Um, and and I, I think that that's so important and probably helps balance some of that out by having the scheduled time to think about problems or think about new opportunities or, as you said, to just not think. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we... Th- even though we say this is my downtime and this is my away time and this is my, you know, uh, relaxing time, there's nothing, there's no switch that you can turn off. Right. You're always going to be thinking about business and pondering business and thinking about ideas and clients and good things and, and bad things and problems and challenges and um, goals and th- there's no switch to turn off. And so keeping that in mind, it is still important to do your best to distract yourself from not having to focus on those things. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've been uh, professionally coached or in a coaching program myself since I was in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always had, a, you know, an external coach that I talk to, even if it's not a hired coach, it's someone, you know, an accountability buddy, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things that we do is we, we try and, and uh, hold each other accountable to 
leaving our phones at home or turning our phones off. So it's there if we need it, yep. but uh, having some time to detach from technology to not feeling like every moment has to be productive and we need to be on the computer at every second. And, you know, uh, when we get to the airport before our flight, we need to be working. And when we're in the air, we need to be working. And when we land, we need to go straight to our meeting. And we deal with that stuff so much on a day-to-day basis anyway. We have to have some time to detach ourselves from the technology that we've become so beholden to. Yeah. And I think that principle in of itself can, it'll feel awkward at first for most people, but turn your phone off. Yeah. Take a free day uh, where you're not tied to it. And you don't have to be thinking about what's going on or not going on and answering your emails and getting that phone call that upsets you or whatever the situation may be. Well, I think that's good homework for every everyone listening to this uh, interview to do is to just schedule one disconnected day. I, I have a friend who just recently took a, uh, a month away from the office and away from technology. Of course, he still had his phone and everything, but deleted the Facebook app, uh, blocked it from his computer, made sure that he wasn't getting on Twitter, uh, wasn't blogging anymore during that month. Uh, and uh, it, it's amazing uh, just the level of conversation we've had since he took that. I, 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 you don't have to take an entire month. Like you said, I think just taking one day uh, would be some great homework for any listener to take. And, and I think another great piece of homework, if you, if you are someone that reads books, and hopefully if you're listening to this, you, you are. Um, Jordan, you have so much knowledge, uh, and you've written a couple of books, you know, Maverick Millionaire, uh, Becoming Incredible. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what makes those books different from other business books? Absolutely. Well, the book Maverick Millionaire was my first book that I published in 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title wasn't mine. That was my publisher's. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it really talks about the practical, uh, not, the, not the, uh, the specifics of my industry, but it talks about how I became successful and how I became wealthy at an early age, mm. uh, finding the right mentors, hanging around the right people, uh, dressing for success, uh, all the little nuances that most people don't really think about and it just addresses the little things, all the little principles that I've used up until that point in order to build my wealth and, and build my, at that time, my empire. And so uh, out of that, I, you know, that's a great book for young up-and-coming entrepreneurs. Out of that, I, I came up with uh, Become Incredible, which I published in 2010. And Become Incredible is about people with stories in their life. And it's about having that story of defeat, having that story of I can't and what it takes to get yourself through that. And I was really writing that book, uh, not only as a successful guy at, at, you know, at an early age in life, but I was also uh, going through it myself, Yeah. where you know, there's this entire world crashing in around me and trying to not be attached to the economy or the real estate market or the difficulties and the challenges in life, and don't let yourself buy into that story that you did it once, but you can never do it again. And, uh, and that was really, really important for me to write that book as well. And, and it, it, uh, it's actually a workbook, believe it or not. It's kind of funny how I, how oh, I put great. it together. But you actually have to write out your story in the book, and you have to face the realities of what your own limitations are in, in your mind. And it's a great exercise. I think it's a great exercise for anybody. Well, I love that you not only talk about taking action, but have written your book to encourage people to take action. Um, if people want to take action and look you up online, how, how can they find you? Are, are you on Twitter? And Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Website you want to point them to? I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I encourage everybody, especially the young up-and-coming that want to build a balance sheet and want to build wealth, uh, to check out my company at savantinvestments.com. Yeah. And uh, we've got uh, the savantreport.com, which people can sign up to on the Savant Report website, which is savantreport.com. Awesome. And uh, you can sign up, and we talk about everything that's happening in the investment world for the young, the old, the rich, and the poor. And it's just about uh, about the world. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll definitely link it up in the show notes. Uh, make sure we point people in the right direction. Uh, Jordan, I, I want to just say thank you so much for taking the time. and So welcome. Uh, and taking really the energy to connect on a real level and, and share not just the glossy uh, Instagram filtered version of your life, um, but but really the, the truth of what it takes to be a, a successful entrepreneur, uh, whether you're in Silicon Valley or elsewhere like Las Vegas. Well, I'm happy to do it. And I appreciate you taking the time as well. I've got a passion for helping people succeed in life. It's uh, it, it's a place that I get joy from each and every day. And it's never, you know, an easy job for anybody to go from start to, uh, to wealth and, and start to happiness. But, uh, if I can make an impact, I'm, I'm thrilled to do it. 
Well, you're really good at it, man. And uh, hopefully we can reconnect, whether it's here in Las Vegas or on one of your trips in the future. Look forward to it, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jordan. Whoa, so much goodness in that interview, and I've already begun to implement it into my day-to-day routine here at the office. Now, I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. I would love it if you would give Jordan a shout on Twitter. Just hit him up at Jordan Weirs. That's at Jordan, W-I-R-S-Z on Twitter. You can find him on his personal website, jordanweirs.com, and then, of course, his business website, savantinvestments.com. Com. I want to give a huge shout out one more time to our sponsors at Developer Town. And then, of course, you can find all of these show notes at powderkeg.co. Even the transcripts that you can download, they're, they're PDFs, so you can take them with you and read them later. And then, of course, you can find our other episodes with great business leaders and investors all over the country, all over the world. If you have feedback for me, hit me up on Twitter. I'm just at Hunkler. That's H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R. And until then, I will see you in the next episode.